Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics, an extra non-Brexit episode this week with Brett Frischman, the co-author of a book called Re-Engineering Humanity, which is about everything, as you'll hear in a minute, from Fitbit to the fate of the human race. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. I spoke to Brett last Wednesday. He was in his office in Philadelphia. I was in mine in Cambridge. This is the good technology. We're going to hear in a moment about the bad, starting with one of the big ideas in his book, what happens when you turn the Turing test on its head. Brett, I thought we could start with the Turing test, which is something that um, listeners, many of them will be familiar with, but some might not. The basic idea devised by the great computer scientist Alan Turing is it's a way of testing the extent to which machines are becoming more like us, basically, and a computer or machine would pass the Turing test if it could pass as a human in a conversation. But you talk about the other side of the line, as you call it, the human side of the line with the Turing test. So to put it crudely, there is a question not just about whether they are becoming more like us, but whether we are becoming more like them. Because another way that machines could more easily pass the Turing test would be if humans were more machine-like. So just tell us a bit about what you mean by the human side of the line in these in these tests. Yeah, I mean, I see Alan Turing's test and his, his discussion of the test as serving a couple of sort of interesting purposes. I mean, on, on one hand, he opens with the question, can machines think, and very quickly moves off that question and says, well, you know, that will be an impossible thing. We can, intractable debate, we'll go back and forth forever on this. Let's instead develop an observational test. And so it's less about whether machines are becoming human than it is using humans as a baseline to identify and evaluate remarkable machines. So we might think that a machine uh, that was capable of having a conversation with observers or human beings in a way that was indistinguishable from other human beings, we might say, well, you know, that machine's remarkable at this particular task, at this conversational capability. And then we might sort of investigate further and evaluate whether the machine truly is thinking in some, in some meaningful way. And so the Turing's test sparks all kinds of debate and discussion and testing on what we think of as the machine side of the line. It's testing machines to find remarkable machines that perform a certain way, using humans as a baseline. What my co-author Evan and I do is we radically repurpose the Turing test and say, well, you know, we're not so interested in identifying potentially intelligent machines. We're more interested in the engineering of unintelligent humans. So we want to look at the human side, on the other side of the line, at the human side of the line, and ask humans in particular engineered environments may behave more or less machine-like with regard to some important capabilities. Maybe conversational texting, but maybe other capabilities we care about. And so what we do is we talk about different capabilities for which a machine might serve as a useful baseline to help us identify remarkable humans in specific contexts. And crucially, 
this is happening now. So it's not like we, we need to wait for machines that can pass the Turing test by Turing standards for these interactions to take place. We are already interacting with machines that are remarkable in many ways, but they aren't Turing-style remarkable. Right. But they are changing us Right. I could Exactly. Time. I could care less. I mean, I could care. I do care about intelligent machines. I care about Watson. But I care less about whether Watson's intelligent or could pass a Turing test then I care about whether Watson reconfigures the environments within which humans develop and live our lives and how the deployment of Watson in, say, a medical context or, or some other context reshapes the humans in those contexts. How does it engineer us? How do we change and evolve and develop and interact with each other differently in that context? Um, so, for, for again, for the development of the tests, our repurposed Turing tests really use simple machines as a baseline because all we're really trying to do is identify when a human being is behaving in a robotic or mechanical fashion with regard to some intelligence test or the exercise of free will or how the human being relates to other human beings. And for those kinds of tests, being like a simple machine, right, being predictable, programmable, automated in, in, in a particular way, that's enough. So we don't really need to use super complicated and complex machines when running these kinds of tests. We just need simple machines. So one example I think a lot of people will be familiar with and have experience of is in a world of sat-navs, GPS systems in cars, human beings, I think most people accept this, it's certainly true of me, have lost the ability to read maps. We can't direct ourselves when the machines don't do it for us. And I think a lot of people recognize that something's going on here, that capacities that human beings had have been lost quite rapidly because of their interaction with and dependence on machines. But that's just one very particular example. I mean, you think this is much more pervasive than that already, right? Right. I mean, I think... Is that fair to say that you think this is... You know, there are multiple interactions that are having similar effects. Yes. And, and the, the tricky thing, and, I, and this is sort of an admission on my part, it's also a point of sort of contention when we have these discussions is that humans have always developed tools and we've gained and lost various capabilities for millennia as we've come to rely on our tools and restructured our environments in ways that restructure ourselves and who we can be and what we can do and what atrophies and what we develop and practice in our daily lives. It's been true for millennia. The, the relevant question, I think, that we try to tackle nowadays and is whether the kinds of what we call techno-social engineering of humans, whether the tools we're developing that are re-engineering us or engineering what we're capable of doing are impacting capabilities that are meaningful to, our, to, to who we are as human beings. GPS is a good example uh, that we use that we talk about in the book and others have talked about how our reliance on GPS to navigate the world affects our capability to navigate. It affects our exercise of common sense in certain kinds of situations, uh, sort of situational awareness. And then the question is studying how GPS affects those capabilities and then evaluating whether those capabilities are, are meaningful ones. Some things we might be perfectly fine losing or outsourcing to technology and not keeping for ourselves. Other kinds of capabilities we might really care about maintaining or sustaining. You know, some would say navigating the world or at least experiencing 
the world matters. Whether or not I need to know how to navigate from here to a location I've never been to in my life before, you know, that's 50 miles from here, is one thing. Or whether I can use a map to help me get there or use a GPS to get there is, is another thing. But if when I use the GPS to help me find my way, I sort of close off the experience of the world. I don't navigate with an awareness of what I'm going through, the streets and, and society that I'm going through to get to the other location. Then we might think something much, much deeper and more important is being lost. And as you say, and you, you say it in the book, you know, a lot of this is about common sense. And we'll come on in a second to what you mean by that. But with the GPS example, it's the difference in a way between, I think we all recognize that, yeah, we've lost a lot of our map reading capabilities, but that's because we don't need them anymore. And we get by fine without them. Right. But we all have examples, we've all done it of following a GPS in crazy ways, well past the point where we know we're going wrong, or we ought to know we're going wrong. You know, trying to get from A to B, and it's 50 miles apart. And you go via somewhere that's 200 miles away. And, and the ability of human beings now to franchise out their common sense to machines that don't have common sense. I mean, the machine isn't able to think in that particular distinctively human way. That seems to be the risk. Is that right? It's that qualitative difference between following a machine that's useful and losing the capacity to know when it's no longer being right, helpful. Right, exactly. Right. So common sense often serves as a sort of a safety valve. So you could think of like airline pilots you know, much of what they're doing is automated, and yet you want humans there to exercise uh, some of its common sense, some of its recognizing based on their expertise, like when things are going wrong and what to do. Um, the problem can, that arises is that the more that you automate in that context, there's more reliance and a sort of complacency can set in, so that it becomes harder to recognize when problems arise. And you can kind of think of that in that very specific context and sort of perhaps generalize it to a variety of other contexts. So, the, I mean, the GPS, again, is, is it's a useful example for, for so many reasons. I mean, one, it's something that we're all familiar with, relying on the routing that it gives us. It's also useful, and we talk about it quite in the book, about GPS creep, how the technology is developed for one specific purpose, and you might think of it as being justified to generate navigation but then you see the technology extend to new uses and new applications, many of which are good or beneficial, but some of which are, you know, may not be. Um, would you have approved of or looked at find-a-friend apps that you track people in real time where they are? Would that necessarily have been something you would have selected as a beneficial innovation from the get-go to justify GPS? Maybe not, but it, once you've gotten used to the idea that geo-tracking is something that is normalized, then it gets a lot easier to extend it just a little bit further for a new use, a new application. So the GPS creep idea is also useful for understanding how function creep or technology creep happens. So, so do you think that there's a kind of Alexa creep going on at the moment or some equivalent of that? I mean, most people, you know, people are increasingly conscious of the potential role, the actual and potential role that, do we call them intelligent virtual assistants or whatever they are but anyway let's just call it Alexa play in our lives but the concern tends to be around privacy so where people think there's something insidious and creepy going on here it's the idea of listening in but from your perspective are we worrying about the wrong thing should we be more worried about the the techno social engineering side of this the way in which we're not simply being 
listened to, but we're being conditioned by our interactions with yes. this technology, which is, and this technology is only going to get more sophisticated over time. Uh, you know, the simple answer is yes. <laughs> um, so I, we are worrying about the wrong Well, thing. I think privacy is an in, like the privacy or lack thereof is an input that enables more fine-grained, personalized, and widespread techno-social engineering of humans, right? There's more conditioning and influence on who we are and, and what we do because of the massive amounts of data that are sort of inputs into algorithmic processes that learn more and more about how to stimulate particular responses. I mean, privacy and data privacy are certainly relevant considerations, but I think we're too often get focused on just privacy as if all we need to do is have informed consent or all we need to do is be transparent about what information is being collected by whom, and that will sort of justify the use of the technology or the deployment of the technology in a particular case. I mean, one of the motivating examples, my kid came home in first grade and was like, Dad, I, you know, I won, I got selected to get this watch and I get to, you know, I get it for free, I get to participate in this program. And then the next day or day, uh, I get a letter from the school. I always joke that it's sort of read like a Nigerian bank scam email. I mean, it's sort of just like, hey, yay, you know, you're, you've been selected. You, you're, you get to participate in this wonderful new program. Your kid will come home with a device, put it on, and, you know, don't worry about taking it off at night or, you know, just keep it on for two weeks and then, you know, we'll give you a report and it'll help you to encourage fitness and the fitness uh, instructor at school will help the student get something out of it. And my immediately was like, what? Like the 24-7 bedtime, bath time surveillance of children? Like, how is, how is this okay? Like, has anyone thought about this? And so I went and talked to the PTA and the, the general counsel of the school district and the, and the fitness instructor. And like everyone, no one seemed to care at all about this program, the device. But once I raised the issue of child surveillance, I used those words which hadn't really been used, then it became a privacy question. All we need to do is have informed consent and we're fine. And I said, but, but, and, you know, and that's kind of what the school district did. And I kept trying to resist and say, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just the more pernicious thing that's happening is that you're basically conditioning kids. It's the social engineering of their beliefs and their preferences about this technology in the first place. The kids and the parents trust the schools and they kind of feel like, oh, it's coming from, and they trust the technology and it's coming from this trusted source. They're like, all right, yeah, they go along with it. And then so you, you get this sort of superficial process of sort of informed consent letters going home when parents can sort of sign off on it. But in reality, that's the more pernicious thing. It's not the data collection about their fitness activities over the course of two weeks or you know a couple of months. It's that you're conditioning them to get used to bodily surveillance by others, by the school district, by third parties who are involved. And the kids just get used to it. The parents just get used to it. But privacy is often important to think about, but it very quickly becomes something that people think of it as sufficient. Like it's necessary to think about privacy and then it's sufficient. If we just deal with the privacy, we're good to go. My reaction is that privacy is just like the first cut at what you need to think about. But there's plenty, you know, the more important things are how we're engineering ourselves and our kids and um, the things we're sort of doing with the technology. And with something like a Fitbit, 
There's a GPS analogy here too. You, you occasionally hear stories of people who are using technology to monitor their health and it makes them do crazy things. You know, in order to reach targets, they destroy their health you know, in order to be the best in their group, in order to run further, push bigger weights or whatever. They go way off the charts because the machine is conditioning them to behave in certain ways. And that's clearly, you know, a, a Fitbit that made you less healthy is a bad thing. Right, right. I mean, But then there's the wider argument that it could condition your behavior in good ways. I mean, that's the basic idea. Like, it is meant to condition your behavior. It is meant to engineer a healthier human being. And that's closer to the, the sort of nudge philosophy, the idea that we can be gently steered without going off the charts. We can be gently steered to the right place that like the sat nav it can take us there more efficiently so it's bad on the first front it would be crazy to follow a machine down a path that does you harm but is it bad on the other front too just it's crazy to follow a machine regardless well it's tricky so a lot of this stuff is billed as smart tech right like oh the, the machine or the technology is smart so follow it. Right? It's going to give you good guidance as to what to do, how to become more fit, how to learn some skill. The thing about anything using the word smart before the technology or sort of implying that it's smart technology, it's, as I always say, it's supposedly smart. And then you have to think about who gains what intelligence and for what purpose. So you can certainly think of Fitbits and you know, activity tracking devices as something that enables you, the user, to be more aware of how ac active you are, to set your own goals. I mean, it certainly can be an input into something where you're engaged in sort of a thoughtful, deliberative process about sort of how to become more fit. Or similar, like you can think of the GPS, getting from A to B. And you might think that, you know, the GPS enables, it certainly does enable you to get from one place to another. But the routes selected aren't necessarily selected fully for your interests. You know, there's the example we talk about in the book where uh, one of the real-time routers sent me down a, a particular path when I was driving from Maplewood, New Jersey to Princeton, New Jersey, and I knew it to be not the, the most efficient and fastest path because I'd driven it so many times early in the morning, there was no one there. And so I just deviated. Every, every, every couple of times I deviate from what that was suggesting just to see if there really was traffic on what I knew to be the more efficient route. And there wasn't. And so I started to sort of ask more about what, what was going on. And the idea is, well, you know, I was being used, right? So the, the GPS system was collecting information about traffic patterns and mapping the, the terrain, the, the area, the streets, for the gain of the system, not for me. And so I think with all so many of these different supposedly smart technologies, there is a positive case to be made that you can participate in pursuing your own values and that technology can enable you to do that. Um, and in other cases, you're fetishizing the perfection of the technology and the, the data collection, but never asking by whom and for whose interests. Nudging is just another example of techno-social engineering of humans. I mean, it's about, it's a more social engineering typically, but you're just architecting choices for people. And so people engaged in nudging practices can do it in theory, if they comply with the ethics that Thaler and Sunstein and others have set out, um, they should be architecting choices that are always in the interest of the person being nudged. But of course, in practice, pretty much most examples that involve private actors engaged in nudge-like practices, they're not just pursuing the interest of the person being nudged, they're pursuing the interests of the choice architects or their employers. 
Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You mentioned you're slightly allergic to the idea that this is a smart technology. Two other phrases that get used a lot in this context. One is smart city. So the idea that, that we might be about to enter a much more pervasive environments where a whole range of different technologies are relating to each other in order to quote unquote improve our lives and similarly with the internet of things that machines are close to and in some cases already are conversing with each other so we're well outside of the world of the Turing test here it's just machine talking to machine but doing so in ways again ostensibly to help us but it's those are both potentially at least much more pervasive environments in which there isn't really any exit. I mean, it's 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 all enveloping. Is that the underlying fear that the creep here is towards a world, and we're not that far from it, where this is actually all around us? So it's not just GPS or Alexa yes, or Fitbit. Abs- this is the, it's everywhere. Exactly. So it's pieces of a larger puzzle. Putting the pieces together can be difficult. I think probably the most useful thing we do in this book is to take a bunch of things that people would think of as, as disparate and unrelated and show how they're all connected. Not in a conspiracy-like fashion, but just sort of systematically going through and showing how various technologies that are data-driven, many are animated by sort of a very old Taylorist scientific management of human beings philosophy of just, if we can just architect environments scientifically in a way that manages how people behave within those environments, we can help people become more productive, more efficient, more successful in their lives. And then when you jump to a world where you've got ubiquitous interconnected digital networks that have sensors. So if you think about the IoT, Internet of Things world, where you've got sensor networks collecting all kinds of data, it's reconfiguring the environments within which we live and develop as human beings. So just as like the... Sure, when we televisions made their way into the home and the living room and eventually into people's bedrooms, they had a, had an impact on behaviors and information flows and social interactions among family members, for example, in the home. We should expect that the deployment of smart technologies, initially the internet, but a whole variety of things built on top of the internet, are reconfiguring the environments in our homes and our hospitals on the bus, uh, you know, in public spaces, and sort of seeing how those different environments are being reconfigured and what they enable and how the techno-social engineering occurs within those different environments is critical because, you know, we're on a path where interconnecting supposedly smart systems is the trend line we're on. You know, in the 90s and 2000s, the idea of sort of ubiquitous interconnection, friction-free interactions and transactions, right? Those were the sort of the goals and and technologies enabling us to do that. And in the book, we spend quite a bit of time suggesting that, you know, a lot of those things made sense when like growing the technology and interconnecting everything 
seem to be you know maximizing network effects and leading to economic growth and bringing more people online. There's huge upsides to a lot of that. But at the same time, the highly personalized way in which smart tech affects human behavior and human development and social interactions is something we, we need sort of longitudinal studies on. We need to have a much better understanding before we deploy the technology. Just to, to go back to, in a way, to the point that we kick this off, if we're thinking about the nightmare scenario here or how this could really go wrong, it seems to me there are, there are two variants, a sort of softer and a, a bleaker version. So the softer version is it's a fear about dependency, that we will become enveloped and ensnared by systems that eventually we're so reliant on because they're so useful for us uh, that we lose various forms of autonomy or free will. The, the bleaker version, and this goes back to where you started, is that it's not so much that the systems are so useful, but they are making us relatively useless. I mean, that they are stripping away core human capacities in ways that we're not noticing in real time, so that we're actually fundamentally limiting our options because we're limiting our capabilities, but we don't realize it. So that second scenario is pretty dystopian, that, that we're re-engineering ourselves to be incapable of resistance, not just because these machines are so great, but because we're, relatively speaking, not so great anymore. Is that, you know, is that the way I put it, is it overblown? I mean, is that is that too bleak? I think you're right that there are really bleak, less and then less bleak scenarios in terms of what's the path we're on. We certainly try to describe the path we're on. Progress along the path we're on seems to be driven by certain kinds of fetishized values, fetishizing efficiency, productivity, and then on the, on the value side, sort of maximizing social welfare measured in terms of making people happy. You know, preference satisfaction or you can come you up say with that it. like that's a bad thing no it's i mean if that well i think there's <laughs> yeah i know i'm, I'm with you there, there's there's right? different I hear what you're systems saying. It's a... I, we defend human flourishing and sort of different kind of way of a pluralistic vision of what the values that, that are at stake might be and and across different societies and cultures and how that might suggest that the world building we're one way or another engaged in ought to make us look for alternative paths than the when we're on. But the path we're on seems to be driven largely by an incredibly strong commitment to maximizing efficiency and productivity wherever possible through data-driven automated systems. And if that means automating behavior of humans within those systems as well, then go for it. The carrot in front is, well, and we will keep people satiated. And so we suggest in the book that, you know, the really bleak version of this is, well, how do you make billions and billions of people happy as possible at lowest cost, right? You're sort of efficiently producing maximal happiness. It's something we sort of talk about as cheap bliss. But you just engineer people's preferences. They want very little. And you barely get over that hurdle. And you'll, you know, measurement-wise, you'll get a whole lot of happiness. And it won't cost you very much. Now, I think of that as a pretty bleak world, but for other people, it's the best world to build. Why wouldn't we want to build a world that maximizes happiness as much as possible, given resource constraints, so that we're you know efficiently doing it? Like, that sounds great. And so we have a whole discussion about this. And that's in the book. kind of that's an old nightmare in a way because it's the old utilitarian nightmare. But it's also I, you took, I can't even remember whether I've got this from your book or just thinking of it. I mean, it's the Wally vision as well. Yep, it's that. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, we do have a little. Wall, we do have a little Wally in the book, and we've got like the experience machine thought experiment. And then we developed this idea of an experience machine N.0, which is sort of ubiquitous sensor networks that basically create an experience machine that's distributed. It's environmental in nature. You never plug in. So Robert Nozick's experience machine was really about whether you individually would choose a life of happiness maximized within the experience machine. And the, and the question is, you assumed you had the autonomy, you had the free will to choose whether or not you would plug in. Our concern is that we're building an experience machine, a global, ubiquitous digital network, smart tech version of the experience machine, but you'll never have a choice about whether to plug in or not. It's more gradual. You make in the book an analogy, which I think some people will get and some people will think is pushing it too far, which is with climate change, and that these are very slow burning, sometimes described as boiling frog problems, you know, it's creeping up on us very, very gradually. I know we're increasingly aware with climate change, less so with what you're talking about, how high the stakes are. We don't confront the moment of choice because it's never presented to us as a moment of choice. It's just a slow, steady path to ruin. And climate change is already provoking a certain amount of fatalism that it's too late. <laughs> we're, we're, we're so far along that path that it's going to be very hard for us to get off. With this, presumably, we're not quite as far along the path. I mean, do we have more off routes with this? Can we yes. Can we get out? Oh, yes, I think so. I mean, I, nothing's inevitable, but entropy is like the Asimov uh, quote that I always like to throw out with regard to the human, what we call humanity's techno-social dilemma, which is the massive global wicked problem that is comparable, although not identical, but comparable in interesting ways with climate change. It's comparable in the sense that it's a complex, wicked problem that exists at multiple scales, right? There's not a silver bullet solution. Just like carbon tax is not going to solve climate change, it's going to make a big difference. It's important, but it's, you need changes to deal with climate change at the macro, at the meso, and the micro levels. Similarly, in climate change, you can't just blame it all on big oil or big coal they bear a responsibility. They're a big part of why we have a political and economic systems that are heavily subsidized and contingent upon sort of fossil fuel-based systems. There are alternatives. And so we can look at that way. But we also bear responsibility because each of us every single day make countless decisions that are rational in the incremental sense, right? They're cost-benefit justified given the world and the systems that we're in make perfect sense to sort of do what we do, but we continue to con contribute to climate change. Like we have to change behavior at the very, very micro level of day-to-day -day behavior of, you know, billions of people. I think with humanity's techno-social dilemma, we, we basically think that the, the comparison with climate change works similarly. It is a problem that has macro, meso, and micro level issues. There's not a single solution. It's not just big tech that's causing our problems. Like there's a tendency to look at Cambridge Analytica, for example, like, oh my gosh, Cambridge Analytica, like that's the problem. Let's solve that problem. And then you look at Cambridge Analytica and you realize, well, wait a minute, you know, Cambridge Analytica is just one of probably thousands of firms working on top of Facebook, collecting data, like using data to sort of personalize stimuli to try to get particular responses. So then you might think, oh, well, it's really a Facebook problem because Facebook, that's the culprit. But you know what? There's lots and lots of different Facebooks out there, lots of different platforms enabling similar kinds of behavior. 
and it's not just the big, huge platforms that are comparable to Facebook that are part of the problem. It's There's all kinds of small businesses doing the exact same thing. So you start realizing that when you see it as a systems problem, that you know the climate change analogy is useful for setting that up. Um, but I do think like you know the solutions set are different for both. I also don't think we should succumb to fatalism or inevitabilism with regard to climate change either. But I do think there are other paths we can be on. But it does require that people do resist, uh, resist the convenience celebrate the transaction costs, go on some bad dates, <laughs> go on some like mediocre dates, I guess. I mean, you don't need to rely on technology so that you only go on perfect dates. You want to go driving and get lost. Yeah, go driving and get lost. Exactly. Go ahead. So I'm going to ask you one last question. It's pr possibly unfair. But as you were speaking, I was thinking and we haven't talked about it because it's not the primary focus of your book. Your book is about, as you say, the world that you live in, the world I live in, you know, the, the, for some people, the nightmarish versions of techno-social engineering are happening under different political systems, particularly in China, um, although we, I don't think we know enough yet, and some of those stories are overblown. But there's also a sense, maybe a growing sense, among the people who are most pessimistic or fatalistic about climate change, that we're going to need techno-social engineering. And we've got two wicked problems, but one of them might be needed, and we might have to make the ultimate sacrifice. One of them might be needed to get us out of the other one. Is that is that a serious thought? I mean, that actually, given the stakes more broadly for humanity and the challenges facing the 21st century, we may have to choose which one we can tackle? Um, I think we can... Hey, here's me being an optimist. I think we could tackle both. And they don't not want... They're not mutually exclusive. We probably do need to use techno-social engineering of humans to help deal with climate change. Because, you know, one form of techno-social engineering is education. It shapes people's beliefs and preferences about things that matter. So I think, yes, like techno-social engineering is not going away. That's sort of inevitable for human beings in an interdependent society. Uh, we just have to identify the kinds of techno-social engineering that put human capabilities at risk, that concentrate power by outsourcing responsibilities and outsourcing thinking to others. I mean, because anytime you talk about a smart technology or an algorithm or a tool or a machine, don't forget there's always a human. There are human owners. There are human designers and creators. The machines and the AI and all that, the tech are just tools. But you shouldn't assume they're neutral tools. I mean, but they're just tools. And so it's really those, it gives rise to political and economic questions. But, te you know, techno-social engineering is gotta go, not going to go away. It's, it's important. We just want the good times. We want it sort of serving our interests. We want it to maintain pluralism and different values among communities. And then when it comes to climate change, I don't know that I would <laughs> answer how to, how to solve climate change. I don't, have, I don't have the answer. I don't think there is an answer. But I do think techno-social engineering will be probably will be a part of the answer. I mean, we certainly, nudging for good climate responsible, you know, good climate responsible behavior is probably a, uh, a worthwhile, is a worthwhile pursuit. Reengineering Humanity is by Brett Frischman and his co-author Evan Selinger. It's published by Cambridge University Press. I think the paperback is now available. We will tweet the link. We have some live events coming up. A fun one is one we're doing in Cambridge at the junction with Aisha Hazarika, who's going to be telling some funny and some interesting stories about her time in politics. It's open to anyone. 
You should pay whatever you like for the tickets. We'd love to see you there. Helen and I will be available beforehand to chat. Back next week with Chris Bickerton and Lucia Rubinelli talking about Italy. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.